The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Here's a light question for you on a Saturday morning. How do I know you exist? Every time I try to say that line, I laugh and we have to redo it. But it's a fair question. For centuries, philosophers have grappled with the idea that other people's existence is fundamentally not verifiable. If my senses are fallible, then how do I know I'm not just a brain in a vat or a matrix simulation or an actor in my version of The Truman Show? Okay, that may be a slightly heavy way to kick things off, but as my team was thinking about this episode, our associate producer Lulu pointed out to me that in 1953, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein attempted to give us an answer. It's conversation. Wittgenstein said that there was no such thing as a private language that only one person understands. So ultimately, the existence of language proves the existence of other people. In other words, it's conversation, it's connections with others. That's what's proof that we're not alone. Conversations give us community and meaning. Lulu says, darkly, that they break us out of the existential prison that is our mind. We have them often, but we don't examine them often. So today, we'll try to do justice to the conversation. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. This weekend, we explore the art of conversation. An expert in conversations, the great Ruby Wax, star interviewer of the 90s, tells us how she got celebrities good and bad, from the Spice Girls to Donald Trump, to tell us who they really are. Okay, tonight's show's all about Goldie Hawn. And you might have noticed this year we have a much higher octane of celebrity. That's because we're paying them a lot more money. And these people are incredibly greedy. Then, a chance conversation with my colleague Peter Spiegel led to a discussion of a broader national conversation we should be having about America's founding fathers, including the mystery of who wrote the U.S. Constitution. He is so absent in the notes, and he's such a major figure, that it just, it screams of conspiracy, to be perfectly blunt with you. But first, FT Weekend columnist Inuma Okoro considers with us what makes a great conversation. A few weeks ago, Inuma wrote about this very topic. In her column, she included a black-and-white photo of Toni Morrison and Alice Walker in 1974. They're looking intently at one another, deep in discussion at Kurt Vonnegut's kitchen table. There are coffee mugs and empty bowls and a half-full ashtray between them, and Alice Walker's hands are clasped. This is how Inuma describes it in the piece. It depicts two brilliant and creative women in the midst of their rapidly rising careers. Don't we all at some point hunger to be part of conversations in which mutually strong, curious, active minds are feeding off one another's ideas? And yet I imagine those types of conversations happen because the people who have them are willing to show up to themselves, to each other, and to the world with vulnerability and a willingness to listen and share. I invited Enuma into the studio to talk about it, and we let the conversation take us. Sometimes it's cultural, you know, like there's some cultures where you're not encouraged to be open or to, quote unquote, air dirty laundry or to whatever. I mean, Mm -hmm. some some cultures, I think, are much more so 
you kind of maintain a polite air. Yeah. I know that my mother, I grew up with a mother who is always, she still is extremely social. And she's always had lots of good friends who would gather all the time, either in our home or we go to their house. When I think of my childhood as a teenager or in junior high school, I mean, I see women laughing in my home, yeah. you know, who are <laughs> who are friends of my mother's. Mm. And I know without a doubt that has rubbed off. I mean, that's that's the environment I was raised in. So what does make conversation good? We think it's a number of things. Openness, a mutual respect, mutual curiosity, being present rather than just waiting for the other person to stop talking so you can speak. A lot of the times, subconsciously, we come to conversations always thinking about what we're going to say and how we're going to respond instead of listening I think listening is actually quite, it's a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) It's really about being present and feeding off one another. It sort of reminds me of of dating in Mm. that like (laughs) you show up and um, open yourself up. It's like a vulnerable thing to open yourself up and, and have a conversation with what could be a stranger. And you think, oh God, I can't do this again. But then you have to. (laughs) <laughs> to be open. I mean, you don't have to. No yeah. one has to. Yeah, yeah. But in order to enjoy yourself, mm-hmm. you kind of have to be open to the idea of letting someone get to know you. Yeah. I actually think dating is a great way to think about it. We look at getting to know someone romantically very different than getting to know someone platonically. Yeah. But we're all testing the waters, right? So I think there's this assumption when you go on a first date that both people know this may or may not happen again, right? It depends on our energy. But when you're meeting a friend for the first time or getting to know someone platonically, I think there's also this assumption, oh, this is the beginning of a friendship. Mm-hmm. But you are also testing one another out. You're testing your how you vibe. You're testing interesting conversation. I think in the pandemic, your relationships mattered. I felt that I was being open with my friends in a different sort of way where we could say to each other, okay, I need this from you right now or, mm. or I need you right now. Mm. We got to a level deeper. I, I think there's something to be said about the past 18 months making all of us sort of rethink and renegotiate the relationships we're a part of. Not every friendship is meant to last forever, mm-hmm. right? Just like not every romantic relationship is meant to last forever. But I think we have a harder time letting go of friendships, mm-hmm. and starting new ones, too. It's interesting that we go from a conversation <laughs> about conversation straight into a conversation about friendship because they yeah. can't be, they're entwined. Yeah. What are friendships and relationships made up of? It's just an endless dialogue. Maybe it's is kind of cheesy, but it's sort of an ongoing conversation. I think whether it's conversation and friendships, conversation with someone you're just on the plane ride with, because those can be amazing too, right? I think the, the unifying thread for me is at the end of the day, people just want to be heard. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. People want to be listened to, honored, respected, and heard. And that can happen in a two-hour plane ride, and it can happen throughout a lifetime. That thing Enuma was touching on, that conversation is an energy exchange, that happened to me recently. Actually, it happened on tape with a colleague. Remember when we did our recommendation segment where we asked colleagues and listeners for one cultural thing they were obsessed with? Our U.S. managing editor, Peter Spiegel, came into the studio to tell me his, and what was meant to be a three-minute recommendation became a 30-minute deep dive into how we talk about our founding fathers today. He brought up a guy no one talks about and who may be as important to American history as James Madison. 
you know, the James Madison, the one we know as the author of the Constitution. So we've decided to bring it to you as its own story, the time we found out that the U.S. Constitution may not have been written by who we thought it was. Peter Spiegel, welcome to FT Weekend. Thank you, Lila. Good to be here. (laughs) Um, You are surrounded right now by about eight to ten books and a bunch of printouts. Yes, I've been told this is not good for audio, but I brought them into the studio anyway. (laughs) In the depths of the pandemic, Peter started buying old history books. He wanted to learn about the Constitutional Convention, which is that period of time in the 1780s after America became independent, but before it had signed its constitution. So it was still sort of in that no man's land, figuring out exactly what kind of country it wanted to be. So the first book, which I picked up at the Strand years ago, I finished this. I ordered this online. It's, you know, out of print, University of North Carolina Press. It is 400-something pages that I plowed through of just really turgid, turgid prose. Are you willing to share how much you paid for it? This was $45. (laughs) Yes. That's not that bad. Well, it's a paperback. Peter's into this period of American history. He studied it in college. And if you're into this period of American history, you've probably read the notes of James Madison because he was the only founding father taking notes during the writing of the Constitution. So there is no real account of what happened except James Madison, who had a premonition that this was going to be something significant. So Madison's contemporaneous notes is basically what every historian for the last 200 years has relied on for their accounts. So just to give you a visual, in 1787, a group of the founding fathers go to Philadelphia to go to the Constitutional Convention to write the U.S. Constitution. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, you know, the heavy hitters. James Madison drafts the Constitution, or at least that's what we learn in school in the U.S. He's the one considered the father of the U.S. Constitution, right? Maybe we just think that because Madison was the only one documenting. And that's what Peter is realizing. As he goes deeper into this wormhole, he comes across another name over and over. In Madison's notes, perhaps not surprisingly, the man who comes out as the center of the event uh, is James Madison. Right. Um, the person who is cited second is this guy, James Wilson. And I had never heard of him. Right. Uh, turns out he's a Philadelphia lawyer. I went to college in Philadelphia. How did I not know about this guy? Um, he taught at what was then the the nascent University of Pennsylvania Law School. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Like, how did I not know about this guy? So I suddenly became interested in who the hell is James Wilson. Turns out there's almost nothing written about this guy. James Wilson was a lawyer. He was a bookish academic type raised in rural Scotland and a leading legal theorist during the founding. He was part of the Committee of Detail, a group of just five men who were selected to write the first draft of the Constitution at the end of the convention. The resolutions had been passed. They just needed to write it up. We don't know anything about it because Madison's not there and doesn't record it. And the problem is there is no notes of what happened in the Committee of Detail. What we do know is what comes out of the Committee of Detail is the first draft of the Constitution and bears only passing resemblance to what has happened in the debate the month before. So they kind of wrote the Constitution. They wrote the first draft of the Constitution, including we the people of the United States, things we know. Peter keeps digging. He has this premonition that the committee and James Wilson are important. But then I just go to Google, and I'm like, does anyone else written about this? And this is where I find the mother load. Okay, these are the printouts. Okay, so uh, just for listeners, <laughs> Peter's picking up— um, Four journal articles by a Penn professor named uh, Bill Ewald. He finds these articles written by Professor William Ewald that say that the first draft of the U.S. Constitution was actually written in this unknown guy James Wilson's handwriting. And they suggest that Wilson had a profound influence on the document. 
what we are taught both not only on a high school level but on a college level, that James Madison is the be-all and end-all when it comes to writing the U.S. Constitution is not true. Mm-hmm. And that, as a matter of fact, a guy by the name of James Wilson, who I just learned about and most Americans never heard of, was the actual drafter. That, to me, should let us rethink what we know and understand about the Constitution. And it turns out that Professor Ewald is really the only historian in hundreds of years to really spend time making sense of these old early drafts of the Constitution. And doing so has led him to discover this new history. Peter called Ewald in the depths of the pandemic and talked with him for an hour and a half. Then he got to do it all again because we invited Ewald onto the podcast. We're actually good. Okay. We're good. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. I'm so excited. Okay, Professor Ewald, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Ewald's father, actually, who was a speechwriter for Eisenhower, had an eye on Wilson. He'd noticed him when researching in his early career, and he made a note to look into him more. Years later, when I went off to law school, he asked me about James Wilson, whom I'd never heard of. I asked my professors, and they said, well, he's a minor figure, not really very interesting. Ewald told his dad, and his dad shrugged. But every few years, he would bring him up again. It it was only after several decades that I finally started working on Wilson and realized he'd been right all along. Wilson has a pretty interesting life story. He was shot at. He almost got lynched. He was burned in effigy more than once. He died of a stroke in financial ruin at 55 years old. I would say if you look at the revolutionary generation, if you're looking for life stories, he's one of the top 50 most interesting. If you're looking at the actual contributions to writing the Constitution or to laying the foundations for the American Republic, I'd say his interest is very much greater than that. Wilson was not in Hamilton. I think we need to rewrite Hamilton. No, well, Wilson's Wilson's basically not in any of the musicals <laughs> except in 1776, where he's he, he's the the scoundrel who can't make up his mind. Oh, Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I just saw that recently. Actually, <laughs> yeah, he's so he's a figure of fun in that musical. Part of the reason that no one looked into the Committee of Detail with as much depth as Ewald has in recent years is because the notes from that committee were dry and disorganized and complicated. Most historians skipped over it. But Ewald's a law professor. He wasn't intimidated by dry text. He lives for dry text. So off he went with some of his students to a safe in the Historic Preservation Society of Philadelphia, where the original documents from the Committee of Detail are held, the first drafts of the Constitution. The only reason I didn't skip over it was I was working specifically on Wilson and noticed a little footnote saying the manuscripts for this committee are all in Wilson's handwriting. They pull out some manuscripts that are barely legible, and they start by transcribing. And things get more interesting as they piece together what these documents actually are. Basically, the committee was the committee that wrote the bulk of the Constitution. There were lots of things that were talked about in the General Convention. They got exhausted in the middle of the summer, they said, let's take a break. Let us hand the job over to this small committee of five people. And that committee of five people took the bit in their teeth, and they essentially wrote the first draft of the Constitution. One of the interesting things to me, Bill, is, is you had to kind of piece together through fragmented, these, these fragmented draft after draft after draft, 
who was advocating what. To me, that's almost more interesting in that the detective work that had to be done was kind of not done for 200 years for the very simple fact that everyone was relying on Madison's notes and he's not there. Let me stress that again. Madison was not in the Committee of Detail. He wasn't anywhere near it. We know the Committee of Detail was where the first pieces of the Constitution came together. We know Wilson was there. We know that those first pieces are in his handwriting. So hold on. Was the first draft of the Constitution written by James Wilson? I think they put him in charge of writing things down because, frankly, the others had absolutely appalling handwriting. (laughs) (laughs) But you can infer, I think he was the most brilliant legal mind on that committee. And many of the things that he was most passionately concerned about, he is the one that I suspect and others suspect put them into the Constitution. Proving it from the existing sources, since all you've got is drafts. So I cannot claim that I've got proof beyond a reasonable doubt, certainly beyond a reasonable suspicion. So he can't prove it for certain, but he does hope he can put Wilson on the map as one of the top five intellectuals of the American Revolution. Not war heroes, not statesmen, but intellectuals. Up there with James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton. He says Benjamin Franklin isn't in the same league, and neither is George Washington. It is it is just odd to me that he has never, as you say, you know, studying the Constitution, he never comes up anywhere. I'm just curious why you think he sort of disappeared from history for so long. One is that Wilson died in disgrace. When he died, a lot of his papers got dispersed. People didn't want to talk about him. So you were in the early period of heroic myth-making, and the framers, the founders, they were posing in Roman togas and saving up all their correspondence for posterity. And here you have this rather strange Scotsman who died in debtor's prison, and nobody really to speak up for him. I should say here that Peter has his own theory about Wilson and why we've forgotten him. As a financial journalist, Peter's interested in the way money influences our everyday lives and the way money influences public decisions. And Wilson, he was a money guy. In America, he became especially close with a man named Robert Morris, the founder of America's first bank, which essentially became the de facto central bank. Wilson actually worked for him. So if you start thinking about it, if the man who wrote the Constitution, the first draft of the Constitution, is working for the most prominent banker in America, why is it? that none of us talk about this anymore. Peter's saying it matters if the possible writer of the Constitution was actually looking out for the financial interests of himself and his boss. We're taught a lot of lofty ideas about the Founding Fathers, that they were wise and noble and wanted to perfect democracy. Only now are we starting to talk more widely about how they owned enslaved people, how they didn't think women should vote. So should we also talk more about the fact that when they were writing these founding documents, a big motivation for them may have been maintaining their class and wealth? Maybe acknowledging it can help us approach political debates today in a healthier way. Also, Wilson hung out a lot with Morris in Philadelphia throughout the Constitutional Convention. So did Washington. There was no way they didn't talk about money. My speculation is, you can't tell me that in after-hour sessions that Wilson and Morris and James Madison and those delegations are not having port at at Morris's house discussing the proceedings of the day. He is so absent in the notes, and he's such a, a major figure 
that it screams of conspiracy to me, to be perfectly blunt with you. Ewald, of course, is the ever-cautious historian. I suspect that you're right. Proving it, that's That's the the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Just as a quick thought experiment, what would happen if, like, the mythos of American Constitution changed to be more accurate as we know it today? Like, how would that change our conversations now? I think understanding that the motivations of our our founders were perhaps more economic and commercial interest would help us to, what's the word I'm looking for? Deify them less. (laughs) Deify them less, but allow us to engage in their ideas in a more real manner. Mm. Um, Just throwing out the name James Madison or throwing out the name Alexander Hamilton to say, what Hamilton wouldn't agree with this, that now is sort of used as a way to stop debate. When actually, let's understand their motivations and not hold put them on a pedestal and understand that they had some of the same shortcomings that our politicians do today and some of the same fears that we do today. And I think that would, in many ways, lead to a more healthy debate. It would help bring the debate a little bit more forward and, and a little bit more nuanced. Ewell doesn't envision Wilson unseating Madison in the history books. But the beautiful thing about discovering new history is once you know it, you can't unknow it. It becomes part of the bigger conversation. There is conversation for pleasure, whether that's the pleasure of intellect or the pleasure of connection. And then there are conversations we have for an audience. I do this. My whole job is to talk to people. And when I talk to them, it's not just for me. It's also for you, who will be listening. It's a lot like a conversation without an audience, but the stakes are different. Because if I don't connect, you'll feel it. A lot of people have to do this. Teachers, public speakers, even parents. I also have to get something from the person I'm speaking with, something that feels honest or true, something that gets a glimpse into who that person is. Ruby Wax is someone who got famous for being incredible at this. I spoke with her recently for the FT's Next Gen Festival. I've put the link to the whole thing in the show notes, but we've pulled out one thread from the conversation here. Wax is American. She came to the UK in the 70s, and she was one of the inventors of the celebrity documentary interview. Excuse me, hello. Excuse me. Uh, 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 the show's about to start. Excuse me. Could you just sorry, put it away? Get in. Don't even wash your hands. We haven't got time. I've got a show to do. I don't know what you She's a comedian, a journalist, and then some. In the 90s and early 2000s, she spent hours with the likes of Tom Hanks and the Spice Girls, O.J. Simpson, Madonna... Hello, welcome to the show. And nobody share any popcorn with those two people because I know where their hands have been. (laughs) And she would get into these crazy intimate scenarios with these people. She cuddled in bed with Goldie Hawn. She got into a bath with Roseanne Barr. She did Kegel exercises with Pamela Anderson. I uh, interviewed when celebrities didn't just go on an island and eat a cockroach, (laughs) when they still had talent. So um, if the person you were interviewing liked you, they'd tell the... um, PR to get lost. And so sometimes we'd spend days together. And in Carrie Fisher's case, we spent 35 years together. (laughs) He became friends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got married. We had children. (laughs) Those interviews that Wax did 20 plus years ago are iconic in the UK, partly because she was so good at what she did, and partly because the subjects she chose then have continued to play a role in our culture, and often not in a good way. She spoke with Bill Cosby on the set of The Cosby Show. She flew with Donald Trump in his private jet. A little bit of Vegas flying in the air. Oh, look at the toilet. Oh, it's gold. Oh, wait, oh, it's a B-Day. Why would you need a B-Day on an airplane? But Wax sort of faded away after her show was canceled. She went through her own mental health struggles, severe depression, treatment, 
and ended up reinventing herself as an author and therapist. Her focus is on mindfulness, a stress reduction style of therapy that includes breathing and being aware of your thoughts. She got a master's at Oxford on it and has written a bunch of books about it. This fall, the BBC brought Wax back for a limited series called When Ruby Wax Met on BBC television. It lets us revisit these incredible interviews with her and watch her watching them for the first time in 20 years. Who better to talk about how to have a good conversation than a therapist who used to be a TV star and now critiques her own performances? When they worked, they were like a love affair. And when they didn't work, for example, with Donald Trump, it was a, it was such a disaster that it was also watchable. But it wasn't a pleasant experience being thrown off an airplane at 33,000 feet. To be clear, Donald Trump didn't push Wax out of the plane in midair. But he did ask the pilot to land it halfway between New York and Las Vegas in Kansas, ending their interview early. He hid in the cockpit to avoid her during the landing. Oh, do you have to go in the front? Anyway, I'm going to just I come go too? upstairs. Relax for a second. Oh, just please. Take it easy. I want to sit in the cockpit, too. Better take up the mic. Excuse me. That's enough. I have a headache. Do you hate me? No, I think you're fine, but it's enough. Bill Cosby didn't like wax either. He asked her whether she had a parent at the BBC who had gotten her the job. O.J. Simpson pretended to stab her with a banana. So I wanted to talk to Wax because she was good. She was doing something back then that no one was. And as a woman, what was it like to have been a punching bag for these powerful men? How is it to look back at those interviews knowing what we know now? But first, how did the interviews actually work? What was the Ruby Wax celebrity interview? You were so ahead of your time. Like, you did things that people thought were wacky. Like, you did interviews in bed with people or very close. You were very close to their faces. And some people thought that that was, I mean, it was sort of sexist, but too much or this loud American woman or Donald Trump kept calling you obnoxious. But it was very deliberate and it was, you know, masterful. Like, you were making people feel comfortable and it disarmed them. So they let themselves be themselves. Well, I knew everything about them because, I, you know, I think that's respectful yeah. But then I threw the notes away and then you just felt the vibe. Don't forget, if you really go into somebody's room and get into bed with them, they're going to throw you out. But clearly Goldie and I had been going at it for four hours. Yeah. She was the one who said, get into bed. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, you and Sharon Stone went to a diner in beards and trench coats. <laughs> I know, but once they want, people want to have fun yeah. and they don't want to be asked the same old questions because they glaze over and the interviewer glazes over. And so if you can have a relationship, you know, and God knows a lot of them don't have time for relationships. Well, if an interviewer can do it for you, then that's just as good as the real thing. Yeah. Wax had come into celebrity interviewing from embedding with people on topics that were sort of sensational or fringe. Religious snake handlers, beauty pageants, the Ku Klux Klan. To her, celebrities were just another kind of person she was trying to connect with and understand. But of all of the singers, actors, athletes, there was one particular kind of hunger for power that stood out to Wax. She could feel herself shrinking away from it in her interviews. You know, you could see the despots coming. Yeah. It's not like they were coated in charm and then suddenly the world went, oh, who knew? Yeah. yeah. You don't throw somebody off an air, uh, jet. So I don't know why I'm saying airplane. I'm trying to uh, denote him. But it was <laughs> a jet with a gold B-day. One of Wax's worst recordings, by her own assessment, was with actor Bill Cosby, who by that point was basically universally beloved as America's dad, Cliff Huxtable, on The Cosby Show. This was years before allegations came out from dozens of women that he had drugged and sexually assaulted them. 
Watching his interview with Wax is haunting, knowing what we know now. Most of his disdain is subtle and physical. He keeps picking up a pretend telephone to tell someone on the other line to end the interview. He makes Wax call him Dr. Cosby. We're at that point in I'm our lives. I'm addicted to cats, Bill. <laughs> we're, at, we're, we're at who? No, it's, I need the You're cat. addicted to cats who? Wait, well, should I finish that what sentence? What did they tell you to call me? Dr. Cosby. Dr. Cosby, I don't know what happened. I just, I, you, you know, probably just got a little too familiar. I got too familiar. I was By the end, he has moved to a spot where Wax is sitting practically at his knee, like a small child. She says he was giving her a role, and the whole time she just couldn't break out of it. You know, with Bill Cosby, I mean, he was really trying to humiliate you. Yeah. Now, I worked on TV, so I'm being paid to humiliate myself. So that's okay. But when you walk away from an interview like that, you feel toxic. Yeah. And also that I was smiling as a man was beating me up. I ask Wax what it's been like to rewatch these interviews now. What would she have done differently now that she spent years studying the brain and mental health? And look, if you're in the throes of love, you know, let's say I was with Carrie Fisher, you don't need anything like mindfulness. You know, if we have a moment of pleasure why would you become aware of it you know humans just soak in it just savor it yeah but when somebody scared me let's say like trump who reminded me of my dad i went into the behavior i used to do with my dad i became a kind of brat Mm. that was um poking him but with a smile on my face and he nailed it he said you're angry with a smile Mm. and he got it the interview actually ended because wax laughed at trump when he said he wanted to run for president remember this is 1996 if I could have done it now, it probably still would have scared me. But I'd be able to, you know, um, pull down that cortisol a little bit and just see who he was rather than get caught in the slipstream of defending myself. And maybe even said, tell me what your plans would be if you were president, because I think you'd make a great president. <laughs> That's a smarter way to play it. When you're bullfighting, don't run at the bull. Today, Wax is writing another book. This one's about finding meaning when all your needs are basically met. Clothing, food, shelter. When we spoke, she was actually in a refugee camp in Greece, volunteering as a mindfulness trainer. But she has mixed feelings about conversation, at least the kind of conversations we tend to have in a world saturated with news and outrage, including outrage at her former interview subjects. It isn't good for her brain, and it isn't good for yours. We want accountability now for people... Who have fallen. And in some ways, it's very good. Like, it's a good thing that we are holding celebrities or people to a higher standard now. But also, we're kind of just like, we're all so worked up about everything <laughs> all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, I, I'm so sick of people sitting at dinner tables or whatever and yapping about the news like they're experts. Right. Saying, you know what I would tell Putin? Oh, no. What would you, because he's waiting on the <laughs> phone to hear your opinion. You know, I read the same newspaper you do, so don't quote it at me. Go see that human being. Not everybody can do it, but I kind of feel a calling to do it. It's like, you know, I wanted to learn about the brain, so I went to Oxford. I just have, I'm very driven, and it gives me relief, you know? So first it was going to Oxford and learning how the mothership works, and also mindfulness and cognitive therapy had such fantastic results as seen in a brain scanner, which I got to see at Oxford. And to me, that's the sexiest thing going. That's it for this week. You've been listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. 
I wanted to flag that this week our massive Books of the Year roundup came out. It's one of my favorite annual FT traditions, and it's really helpful for the holidays. I have a link to it in the show notes. We also just learned that Jason Mott's novel, Hell of a Book, just won the National Book Award in the U.S. If you want to listen to our interview with him, you can find that in the feed. Please keep in touch, say hi, tell me what topics you'd like to hear us explore, and what you think of the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. As always, I will put some behind-the-scenes photos from the episode on Instagram. Our show notes have links to everything mentioned, as they always do. There's also a special discount there on an FT Weekend subscription and a great FT.com trial. We've got the best discounts collected for you in that one link. You can also find it at FT.com slash Weekend Podcast. Please leave us a review or share the show with your friends. That really is the best way you can show your support. And thank you for everyone who has. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my incredible team. Katya Kumkova and George Drake Jr. are our senior producers. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragossa are our executive producers. And we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com.